my job to welcome our speakers. It's also my job to introduce tonight's topic, which is the possible political implications for Australia of Donald Trump giving rise to the US presidency. I want to spend a few minutes thinking out why I think the topic is important from the perspective of a public policy think tank like the CIS. 2016, I reckon, was probably the best and worst year for political punditry on record, depending on whether the pundits called or called correctly or incorrectly the US presidential election. Not only that, but also the UK Brexit referendum and the electric current system in federal election. Most pundits have egg on their faces, while a small minority are quite sadly dismissed their thoughts against the argument of victory. We have both kinds of pundits on the panel tonight. We either come to his own and expose themselves crying as they wish. Whether a pundit picked the result largely depended on whether they picked up ahead of time what has become obvious in the wake of Trump's victory. This is the divide between the establishment political class, aka the elites, and a clearly electorally significant group of disenchanted ordinary voters who have rejected the leadership of the establishment elites to the absolute detriment of mainstream parties. What has created these divisions and led to what we dubbed a crisis in establishment politics in the US? Looking at Trump's Brexit and his emergence of one nation are all examples of the iron law of politics that says politics is always a war of For the last 30 years or so, as political correctness has extended its control across our respective culture, most elites, irrespective of form of party allegiances, have been pressed topics unfit for public debate. Most elites have refused to discuss, let alone represent, greater concerns across a range of economic, social, or cultural issues, ideas, and values, which have been dismissed, or as Clinton's influence term, as deplorable and worse. The silence of the elites has created a vacuum, a vacuum that many political players have now filled, and thereby won the votes of those who feel strongly about being unrepresented by the political class. This is the vacuum that Donald Trump fills with his brash and often crude campaign promises all the way to the Oval Office. Now, opinions will, of course, vary about the populist revolts against the establishment on issues spanning everything from free trade to free borders to freedom of speech to freedom of religion. But whatever you think about those issues, I think it's important to consider the broader ramifications for the health of our democracy and for the capacity of our democratic institutions to deliver the political leadership required to address the national challenges that we face. Political leadership in a democracy ultimately depends on trust between the elected and the electors, trust that's founded on the belief that politicians will faithfully represent the views and interests of voters. And establishment politicians fail to say or do what ordinary voters say or think, they, uh, that trust breaks down, diminishes their political credibility and diminishes political capacity. In turn, voters become far less likely to listen and follow when establishment figures try to say things or do things that voters may not want to hear but need to hear about things like the budget, the tax, the health and other entitlements. I think these are pertinent issues for us to consider as Australians at a time when there's a general sense of despair about inability to successfully serve the government because of such a massive leadership, particularly in economic concerns. Hence, the purpose of tonight is to explore the extent to which the populist revolts 
and doesn't cause to happen here, or it has, but it has happened here, and it was not known in South Asia, and I've not seen it. And there's a lot of it out there, speakers, but it's probably not really important enough to share their insights and wisdom here tonight. Our first speaker is Tom Sister. Tom's a senior fellow at the University of Sydney's United States Studies Centre and presenter at ABC's Radio National. He's been published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post and Foreign Affairs, to say nothing of his recent saturation TV appearances as the go-to Australian commentator in the Trump administration. Tom will be followed by Louise Pegg. Louise is a barrister and occasional opinion writer who's keen on democracy, foundational freedom and the maintenance of core public institutions. She's practiced widely in, in the public law field and in recent years has taught undergraduate and postgraduate public law subjects. Our third and final speaker is Ross Cannon. Ross is a former member of Parramatta in the Federal Parliament and has worked in law, business, banking and politics. He's a regular political commentator on Sky News and is the co-host of Sunday Morning Outsiders program. In the wake of last November's US election, Ross was dubbed Trump's biggest Aussie supporter by the media. Tom, Louise and Ross will each speak for approximately 10 minutes. They'll then be joined by my colleague, Rebecca Leifter, who has recently joined the CIS as a research associate. Rebecca will lead the discussion with the panel and the questions from the audience. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our speakers and invite Tom to lead off. Thank you very much, Jeremy, and thank you all for being here. And uh, what a day to talk about Trump and Australia. For those of you who aren't familiar with the last few hours, the Prime Minister continues to argue that the deal struck between his government and the uh, outgoing Obama administration on refugees uh, is a done deal. But the President, however, begs to differ, taking to Twitter just two hours ago, calling it a done deal. And uh, this follows a Washington Post exclusive story today uh, that shows that uh, Donald Trump um, was very upset with Malcolm Turnbull during their 25-minute phone call conversation on Sunday. And among other things, Donald Trump uh, says that, uh, that uh, Malcolm Turnbull and this deal might mean a new Boston bomber in America, uh, that it might mean, among other things, um, uh, severing of the ties, perhaps. And uh, it doesn't quite go that far, but he clearly, in his language, made it clear that um, he would hang up after 25 minutes. And I'm reliably informed that the reason why Donald Trump was in such a bad mood is that he was told uh, that Malcolm Turnbull was one of those liberals. <laughs> Speaking of liberals, uh, quick time out. I want to congratulate the Centre for Independent Studies. Last year was 40 years, uh, Australia's leading liberal think tank. Uh, 1976 it was created, a special year 76, little known fact. It was the bicentennial of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, arguably the greatest document of political freedom. It was also the bicentennial of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, uh, the greatest document for economic freedom. And of course, in 1976 was the year that the great free market economist Milton Friedman 
won the Nobel Prize for economics. So the fact that the CIS was established in that special year that tells you something about freedom. It really resonates. Jeremy mentioned that I'm going to wipe egg off my face, and that's always never pleasant. But I think it's always important that journalists and academics always be held to account. And the reality is, uh, virtually all of us, not all, well, there's one of the few exceptions, but most of us were wrong about the Donald. Why was this the case? Well, I think the general consensus, right from the outset, if you go back to June, July, when the Donald launched his presidential bid, the consensus was that he was rude, crude, rude, a bit of a buffoon, uh, who, to put it mildly and politely, was incapable of understatement, um, erratic, divisive, he lacked a core governing philosophy, and the general consensus was this would unite the Democrats behind a very flawed candidate in Hillary Clinton, it would alienate those important independents in a critical centre, it would upset the Hispanic community, the fast-growing demographic group, it would alienate women, especially college-educated Republican women, and moreover, it would divide and splinter the Republican Party and the conservative movement more broadly. This was the overwhelming consensus to which I subscribe. But you have to remember, the party of Reagan was very reluctant to embrace Donald Trump for various reasons. And the party of Reagan, over the last 40 years, has been about reducing the size and the scope of the federal government, free trade, immigration, an activist engaged foreign policy. Trump is none of those things. In many respects, Trump represents an insurgency populist movement against many of the core tenets of Reaganism. I'll never forget in late 2015, National Review, Ronald Reagan's favorite magazine. Many of you are no doubt familiar with it. Uh, edited for a long time by William F. Buckley Jr., the patron saint of American conservatives. He dedicated a special issue, Stop Trump. Extraordinarily, you had about 30 to 40 of the finest conservative and neoconservative minds in the United States writing articles of why Trump should not be the GOP candidate. Add to this the electoral arithmetic, demography. Hillary Clinton, for all her flaws, was nevertheless the most experienced political figure, uh, arguably in living memory, perhaps other than George H.W. Bush. Add to this all of those factors, and you can see why the betting markets, the pollsters, the experts, or so called experts, predicted a Hillary Clinton win. We were wrong. Why? Well, I think the best explanation, this is probably one of the few times that people like us can ever praise the fellow, but Michael Moore, the left-wing movie documentary maker, I thought had it best in the months leading up to last November's election. He said that Trump was resonating with a lot of working-class folk, uh, uneducated mainly, from Rust Belt states, deindustrialized towns, from states like Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, many of these states hadn't voted Republican since the Reagan era. And Trump, according to Michael Moore, was resonating with folks because he stood up to globalization and Wall Street and the big corporate banks. And he railed against identity and political correctness that had poisoned the Democratic Party. And although a lot of these folks didn't particularly like Trump, 
they nevertheless saw him as a human version of a Molotov cocktail that they could throw into the system in Washington and smash the system. And the reality is, although Donald Trump lost the, elect, lost the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes, he won pretty convincingly in the electoral college votes, which is what counts in the American system. And he won over those so-called Brexit states that Michael Moore identified. I think another reason why people like me were horribly wrong about Donald Trump, and I say this about academics and journalists especially, is that we all too often live in a bubble. I think that um, it's very easy for us to float around and not even mix with a Donald Trump supporter or a Marine Le Pen supporter or even a Nigel Farage supporter or a Pauline Hanson supporter. Uh, this is certainly the case with a lot of my colleagues at universities and in journalism. I'll never forget the day of the election, uh, spending the day at Channel 7, and then going to the ABC that night, and seeing all my colleagues in radio and television fighting away from sharp objects. And I said, you guys have to be dispassionate about this. You've got to report it as it is. But of course, a lot of these journalists just could not come to grips with the fact that a Donald Trump resonated with so many people who are fed up with globalisation, or at least blame globalisation. I think they're more likely to be right to blame technology, but they're blaming globalisation for displaced uh, jobs and wage stagnation and income inequality. They're blaming political correctness. They're blaming open borders. Um, and I think all too often journalists and academics, folks who often watch on television, we do live in a bubble. And the episode reminded me of something that Pauline Kael, the New Yorker film critic, something she said after Richard Nixon's landslide election victory in 1972. He beat George McGovern 49 out of 50 states. He won 61, 60% of the votes. Pauline Kael, a quintessential metropolitan statistician from Manhattan, she looked at her colleagues the next day and said, how could this be? I don't know anyone who voted for Richard Nixon. <laughs> Finally, um, I think it's worth just concluding before we go to the next panel. Can a Donald Trump-like figure resonate in Australia? I'll say a few points. One, I think Donald Trump himself is peculiarly an American phenomenon. And we can talk about this in Q&A. I think America, the broad cross-section of the American people, are in a foul mood. 60 to 70 percent of the American people, according to all the available polling evidence, think that the country is heading in the wrong direction and these polls precede President Obama. So they go back to the Iraq war of 2004-2005. But I do think that he's clearly, or Trumpism, if you like, has resonated in many parts of Europe, uh, especially in France, and we'll know in a few months' time whether the Trump-like figure Marine Le Pen is. It's conceivable she could be. But whether a Trump-like figure in Australia resonates I have my doubts uh, on two, re for two reasons. One, unlike the United States and Europe, uh, we've had 25 years of continuous economic growth. We haven't had a recession in a quarter of a century. We've had real wage growth throughout much of that period, take one off now. But it's been, all things considered, a robust economy for that 25-year period. We haven't had that in Europe and we haven't had that in America. That's one point. Second point, as controversial as our border protection policies are, I would argue they help boost 
public confidence in a large-scale, non-discriminatory immigration system. And that confidence is obviously lacking in many parts of Europe and indeed in the United States. And so sluggish economies and poor immigration controls, I would argue, are the two principal reasons why we've seen the proliferation of the Trump and Trump-like movement across Europe and America. I am doubtful that it could happen here. Although, if our economy does go into recession and if we somehow lose control of our borders, and, moreover, if political threatens continue to uh, foul the academy and the broader culture generally, circumstances would change. Hello, everybody. Uh, tonight, I have been charged uh, by my host with trying to explain, and I quote, why the political, media, legal, and academic elite don't get it, which I took to mean the Australian political um, elite, really. It's a very good question. Given that I have spent almost half of my uh, entire nearly 50 years living in what uh, Hillary would call hardcore deplorable territory, and the other half of it um, living and working in my so-called elite um, in Phillip Street and the CBD and then living in the principality of Wentworth. I suppose I'm as well qualified as anyone to offer a, spirit, uh, offer a proper answer. It's also possible I'm confused, but here goes. If I had to give a one-word answer as to why the elite don't get it, don't get Trump or Brexit for that matter, it would be value. Bill Clinton's 1992 adage that it's the economy stupid, or the Australian variation, it's all about the hip pocket, is still being rolled out. My co-panelists almost just did it, um, even post-Trump, by politicians and commentators. Little wonder it's proved a very useful axiom for us to justify horse riding around election time. Yes, economic circumstances can and will determine the outcome of an election. We should never write off the hip pocket. But it is misguided, I think, going forward to think that it's all about money. Middle England knew that there might be a cost to getting out of uh, the EU, but they wanted, they wanted to get out anyway. They wanted their country back. They wanted to reclaim their institutions. And they were prepared to pay for it. No, there's a new game in town, I think, and it's not just the economy, stupid. It's value. That's why the elite don't get it. It's a case of fundamentally different values and priorities driven in huge part by where people live, how they spend their work or their time at work and play. And that ultimately is the thing that drives our worldviews. Those worldviews have been really diverging, I believe, in the last decade or so. When I took this to a senior liberal last weekend, he said, well, there's always been a difference between the outer suburbs and the regions and the rest. True but I don't agree with the suggestion that there's nothing particularly new going on. Big slabs of the media, politics on both sides, the academy, which has been off the reservation for a long time, the professions, at least in the CBD, and let's say it, some big, some in big business, are now so far removed 
from the World Bank of Ordinary People to our fellow citizens, whether in the UK, USA or here in Australia, that it's true. They just don't get it. If we're in the business of looking into a crystal ball, we need to understand what is driving the disruption. We know that many who voted for Trump neither liked nor admired him. But it doesn't matter. If not Trump, it would have been someone else in time, I believe. But on this occasion, Trump won because, not because it was him, but because he was up against Hillary, the most obscenely establishment person to have ever run for the office of president. At its simplest, Trump, Trump is the manifestation of a rejection by a lot of clear-thinking, common-sense people of politics as usual. And Hillary was the embodiment of politics as usual. Not obviously the first to say that. Why are the people, but not so much the establishment, rejecting politics as usual? Is it the spin, the broken promises, the talking points and slogans, the leaking, the annual entitlement thoughts, the designer gear, the white cars? I hear a hard head in my ear. Louise, this is politics. Politicians have long been on the nose. They've been spinning for millennia. John Howard lost a few ministers to travel warts in his first term, and white cars have been around for decades. That is true, but it's worse because the behaviour is worse on both sides. A lack of respect for the Oxford Prime Minister, five in seven years, the appalling treatment of Prime Ministers while in office and then when they leave office. The now accepted idea that we in Australia are in perpetual campaign mode, the obsession with polls and polling, the abject lack of courage and authenticity, the obscene increase in the numbers of advisers and their influences and their influence, and the, the pervasive impact or influence of vested interests. No one likes any of this, but ordinary people hate it more because it does not accord with the way they live their lives. You can stand, stand on that, I'm sure, in the rest of your life. What an explanation. Add to this the values problem. Identity outrage and victim politics has been embraced by Labor and a number of progressive liberals in a pretty big way. Many ordinary Australians think it is inappropriate, to say the least, that we are teaching kids in schools that it is perfectly normal to think you might be a boy if you are a girl or vice versa. Or that it's perfectly standard to be sexually active with multiple partners in your early teens. They shake their heads when students who make a silly, bolshie remark on, on Facebook or a political cartoonist gets taken to court for being racist. They scratch their heads when a prosecutor who is investigated by a corruption body, a corruption body, allegedly suggesting how an acquaintance might avoid a, a breathalyzer test. When avoiding breathalyzer tests is a national pastime. Who hasn't taken an alternative route home after one drink too many? Not me, but I know a lot of you have. <laughs> These things are nuts and totally at odds with the common sense values of middle Australia. Possibly the most defining difference, though, between insiders and outsiders here and around the world we now know is their attitudes towards their country. In the suburbs and the regions in Australia, people are proud to be Australians. They love Australia Day and they love Anzac Day even more. 
they think it is important to vet all the all immigrants. They don't want immigrants coming here to go on welfare, and they think it's 100% fair for immigrants to integrate. After all, that's what many of them did, and that is what made modern Australia. These are the views of the mainstream right throughout the Western world. Yet, big plays of those who inhabit and control our institutions, journalists, CEOs, lawyers, academics and politicians in both major parties think that these attitudes are based on embarrassment. They would not be seen dead waving a flag, and they think the world's problems can be solved by opening all borders. More than that, and this is where it really bites, I believe, and it's starting to bite here. Many are comfortable, many of these establishment people are quite comfortable with laws or norms that result in their values being imposed on their fellow citizens via AT&T, for example, or via immigrant ghettos in other people's suburbs. They have no problem at all when it suits them, curtailing the freedoms that our founders did assume, or axiomatic, freedom of speech, press, fair trial, property rights, and religious freedom. They have no problem with those being curtailed in favour of their values. That, I believe, not the economy, is the singular characteristic that persuades him. His willingness to take this on in a way that was unprecedented, as Tom has said, that a politician from a mainstream party could simply respond to negative press from the New York Times with hashtag Daily New York Times was stunning. Of course, courage, that vital missing ingredient from politics as usual, was easy to crack because he had absolutely nothing to lose. He was already stupendously wealthy. He was already mocked and pilloried by the establishment prior to even running for president. He had nothing to lose. The big question for us is, can someone outside the mainstream parties emerge as a great new leader? My thesis, and I'm sorry to disappoint the revolutionary reaping for a cataclysmic Trump event in Australia, is that the Trump phenomenon is already happening here, and in the foreseeable future, it's going to be more of the same slow burn, but with an acceleration in the regions and around the suburbs. Our innate conservatism, despite some people liking Trump and following, for example, but our innate conservatism, compulsory preferential voting, which ain't going anywhere anytime soon, and the monumental physical and human campaign infrastructure required in every house of rep seat, which I have been directly involved with for two uh, campaigns now. That leads me to the conclusion that it's unlikely, at least in the short term. We will get some serious one nation disruption in conservative states, but it won't change things overnight. We will get more cries, more shooters and fishers, we might get a story. Absence of majors coming to their senses we will get more minority governments and more gridlock in this country, which is tragic. What of the major parties? Well, we would do well to remember that Sir Donald launched himself from within the Republican Party. He was a transplant, a seriously foreign body that nearly got rejected. But he survived and emerged victorious from within a mainstream party. The prospect of one of the major parties in Australia now producing a parliamentary leader who is not put there by backroom deals 
that will challenge with our own party room and bring entitlements into line with community expectations and stand up for vested interests is very remote. Yet this is, this is what is required to restore faith. There's another huge impediment, and that is Westminster. I was reminded recently, recently that Gwyneth Begerman used to have a wonderful few lines in a, in a stump speech when he admitted new solicitors to the Supreme Court. It said, it, it went, We Australians like to think of this as a young country. Indeed, the second line of our national anthem is that we are young and free. But when it comes to basic mechanisms of government, the rule of law, and parliamentary democracy, this is an old country. On that measure, we are older and more evolved than the USA. It also makes us more immune to political disruption. Responsible government is a serious bulwark against populism. The requirement that the head of state, be it a monarch or not, by convention exercises no political power, that the head of government is a member of parliament, that he or she leads the executive council, which is empowered entirely by those who sit in parliament, and is nearly a first among equals, that the executive has both individual and collective responsibilities to the parliament and to the cabinet for each other. These things evolved, not by accident, but over centuries, so that Westminster is a serious break on untrammeled executive or personal power. It is a genius system of ensuring that no individual gets too much ahead of themselves. It is a strength in that it's conducive to stability, no matter what the background. It is a weakness in that there is a practical and very real practical limit to what leaders can do. Pressure in the system, as we have now, I believe, can only be relieved through elections which is not that helpful when both major parties are beset by the same structural and cultural problems. It's very hard, therefore, both in theory and practice, for populism to flourish in an Australian context, I believe, other than on the fringes. However, the little bit of Washington that we inherited from the USA, that unrepresentative school of the Senate, is at the moment counteracting the stability that is inherent in Westminster. The Senate is now operating in a way entirely removed from what was intended. Governments simply cannot execute their mandates. To be fair to the politicians, this has become such a serious structural impediment that it probably is the number one factor in what is now, without doubt, a crisis in our democracy. I might add, during the convention debate, some of our founders foreshadowed that this would happen. They lost, they lost the debate. If I were a revolutionary, I might posture that the Trump machine is about to arrive on our shores, that the establishment is so removed from, uh, from the people that a great new leader can once done your favour. But I'm not a revolutionary, partly because history has shown us that revolutions usually end in overreach and tears. And anyway, I personally don't hanker for a Trump in Australia. I want us instead to fix our problems, particularly when the solutions are staring at us in the face. If the two major parties had the slightest motivation to put the national interest above their own, they would embark on bipartisan efforts for sensible constitutional change. It would be amazing what they could achieve if they got together and ran a campaign together. Those, those changes might be lengthening our parliamentary terms and the mooted Section 57 amendment to enable joint sittings to address parliamentary gridlock. These would provide much needed 
So I must maybe structure circumstances and help governments to govern. The neighbours also need to embark on genuine initiatives for, mem- for massive membership drives so they can once again start connecting with real people in real communities. That's going to be hard because at the moment they're not connecting at all with real people in real communities. So going out to the people where I live in Goulburn and trying to get members in will be hard. They have no choice. They will not survive in the long term, in the very long term, if they don't do it. In New South Wales, where the Liberal Party is at breaking point, unless we give power to the members, real people and real communities, our members and supporters in the regions and the outer suburbs will desert us in droves. We would also do well to do or think about of what others have done, give members a say, a say at least, in electing parliamentary leaders. This would reduce the influence of factions, stop the international embarrassing leadership changes, but more importantly, invest the parliamentary leader with democratic legitimacy and authority. The crisis of our, in our democracy is of our own making, because the major parties, especially since 2007, have been mired in self-interest, self-immolation, and have been out for lunch with everyone but Middle Australia. Who wouldn't have time, in any event, for lunch? It has taken two major disruptions on the other side of the world to jolt them, and now they are, as we've all seen it lately, scrambling towards the bush. Whether the animal spirits that have been unleashed by Brexit and Trump will be enough to finally force the necessary structural and cultural change that is urgently needed to make our little big country start to function again is an open question. At the end of the day, though, we are but just at the beginning. It is all about values. Well, it's a great pleasure for me. To congratulate myself. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, um, as Tom says, uh, I feel like uh, uh, we have been somewhat uh, stalking each other. Um, but um, this is a big day, a very big day. And uh, in many respects, it is a um, a tough day for Australia, even a bleak day for Australia, uh, because I believe that just as Donald Trump ended the political career of Jeb Bush uh, in three words, low energy guy, Donald Trump uh, in all seriousness, in my view, uh, has just ended Malcolm Turnbull's political career. Uh, in uh, one uh, sentence, uh, that was the worst call uh, so far. Um, now, um, my task. Um, I congratulate myself, uh, uh, is to say, what do I think Trump did right? 
sort of German construction, uh, being the obedient male that I am, uh, and what are its implications for the Australian establishment. And I want to say that um, there has been this feeling uh, that Trump was, as Tom said, some kind of a buffoon, uh, some sort of a clutch, some guy stumbling into politics who had no idea what he was doing. And uh, I want to tell you that that has never, uh, never been my view. Uh, the most famous encapsulation of the campaign, the campaign from the Atlantic, I should credit the journalist whose name escapes me, uh, is that um, you know the media establishment uh, took Trump literally, but not seriously, whereas the American people took Trump seriously, but not literally. And can I say that uh, I believe, by being absolutely frank, uh, that the Australian people uh, were entirely betrayed by the establishment media in their coverage of Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump and this campaign from the very first day. Uh, I believe the performance of the national broadcaster was an absolute disgrace. I believe <coughs> that uh, the that there are basically only one or two genuine journalists worthy of the title left in the entire uh, in empire of Fairfax Media. I believe that um, you know Fairfax Media. Uh, its motto uh, in Latin, uh, Warwick Fairfax told me on one occasion, uh, was in moderation all our glory. The Tory calls me Whig, and the Whig, he calls me Tory. Uh, well, I can tell you, um, you know, the, the Sydney Morning Herald's masthead now, no doubt on the advice of an expensive consultant, uh, reads simply, independent, always. Well, I think the Sydney Morning Herald should be sued for misleading and deceptive conduct. Because there is no organisation that the relationship between independence and the Sydney Morning Herald is the same proximity as sort of Western Sydney and the far side of the moon. Um, these guys are on a completely different planet. And the losers, okay, for somebody like me, and I expect many in this room, I mean, I've been a Herald reader uh, essentially since I was old enough to hold an opinion. And the idea of opening the broadsheet, you know, and the smell of ink on the page, and the, the power of that masthead in that distinctive font as a journal of record, which was something which bred in me this instinctive kind of respect, a sort of reverence. And I had this sense. Edmund Burke coined the expression the fourth estate as this sort of sacred, one of the great sources of ballast to protect the citizens. And yet what we have seen, you can go from one end of the national broadcaster to the other. You could walk up every one of the sort of 11, 12 floors at Ultima. You could knock on every single door. You could go into the back rooms of the production staff. You know, I was interviewed by the 7.30 report yesterday. Uh, the uh, sound guy, the 7.30 report, unlike Sky, you know, it turns up with the interviewer, a sound guy, and a camera guy. 
know, in front of me, stands up. He's running down with a camera to watch the man stand, the whole train one. And the sound guy uh, says, you know, it's a bit of chit chat, chit chat. I said, oh, yeah, I worked for this, 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 that, this, that, this, that. I said, I've worked for that before in my life. Uh, he said, uh, you know, I've never gone near commercial. Uh, he said, in fact, uh, I only watch the other thing. And then he said, you know, I have not seen a television commercial since the Montreal Olympics. <laughs> and you want to talk about the bubble? You want to know how deep inside the bubble? I mean, this is Ultimo is basically uh, Pravda 1950. Uh, and, and what the, the problem is, okay, the problem is the guy is telling me he hasn't seen a television commercial since the Montreal. He's telling me as if this is a mark of achievement. You know, this is a moment of pride for him that he has not been polluted by the commercial culture. Okay? And so what we've had in the treatment of Donald Trump is just one of the species of sneering, uh, looking down the nose, um, you know, this, we talk about political correctness. Um, it is a phalanx. It's a phalanx. We've got Tom Switzer here. Tom Switzer, I would say, took Trump's audience seriously. But I will tell you, he was the only academic in the United States Studies Center who did. Only one out of 30. Not a single news and current affairs broadcaster, analyst, commentator in the whole of the national broadcaster in any capital city, radio or television, took Donald Trump's audience seriously. We know the whole of Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs was entirely operating on the assumption that Trump was a joke, he had no chance, would be defeated. So the whole sort of organism of Australia's professional diplomatic apparatus was wrapping its arms around tongue-kissing Hillary Clinton on the assumption that she was invincible, obviously could not be beaten. Well, where does that... What we have discovered, there are consequences for that kind of catastrophic misjudgment, and we have just experienced one of them today. As Tom Twister says, it's not just the consequence of the phone call, it's the briefing beforehand, another one of these liberals. Now, I'm sure that Steve Bannon would have turned to uh, the great man and said, you're about to talk to the Justin Trudeau of Australia. Okay. Um, that's my text about the talk, the locker room chat. That would have been going on. And, um, you know, we had a situation where, you know, you, we've got, you, you, you finally had the tall timber, this massive uh, edifice of the establishment has just come crashing down. It's a whole new world. Everyone's in a state of shock. And so every significant Australian, you know, Donald Trump went over to the United States and the lead up to the election didn't even seek to meet. Sorry, Malcolm Turnbull didn't even seek to meet with Donald Trump. It's all over John Kerry. You know, we love Barack Obama. We can't get enough selfies 
you know, with uh, Hillary Clinton. But what is the consequence for 24 million Australians, right, who are not in the selfie, okay, who are not part of the establishment, who are exposed to risk? You know, they have got enough problems as it is. Besides, it's not just, you know, the question, could there be a Trump figure in Australia? Right? Other Australians are very tolerant. A combination of tolerance and disengage when it comes to the political class. Okay? They basically expect the political class to be self-serving. They basically expect uh, the political class to conduct themselves with low levels of care. They expect the political class to be fairly incompetent. Okay, but when the political class, as we have seen, for example, you know, with these three students at Queensland University of Technology, where you've got an institution of the Australian government which has turned its gun on three students and has harassed, has intimidated, has persecuted, has prosecuted them to within an inch of their lives, well, I say they can go to hell. You know, this is what provokes revolt. This is what provokes revolt, when the government actually turns on the citizen and starts attacking them. And I'm going to tell you, um, what I understand Donald Trump needs to read his books. Okay? And if you want to understand Julius Caesar, you need to read the God's work. Okay? Because Julius Caesar wrote the book. And he reveals his mind in the book in his own words. Um, if you want to understand um, Winston Churchill, you, know, you should read History of the English Speaking People. If you want to understand Donald Trump, you should read his book. Because uh, while well, he had the aid of a, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a, of a writer, of a scribbler, um, there's absolutely no doubt these are just genuine thoughts from man himself. And in, 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 in terms of saying what did Donald Trump do right, okay, the first thing was what he did right was his life before politics was life outside of politics. Okay? It's a very human story. It's a story uh, you would do, we would all do well to understand. And, you know, things like... Um, you know, his older brother, Freddie, was actually the better-looking one of the five kids. He has the absolutely smooth edges. Everybody loves Freddie. And Freddie got invited to all the parties. Everyone who met him said he was a top lad. But Freddie lacked the fire and the confidence to take on Fred Senior, who was a hard-nosed construction guy who started every day at 6 a.m. on a construction site. And Donald, Donald Trump said of his older brother, uh, he was sort of the older brother was pushed into the business, right? But he never really took to it, in part because he was always intimidated by the father, who was a hard man. And um, but Donald Trump talks about in the book his own aggression that he had even as a young boy, and on one occasion he nearly got expelled for punching his music teacher because he formed the view that music teachers didn't know what he was talking about. And then Donald Trump said he had this revelation that he had to channel his aggression into his using his mind to achieve outcomes rather than physically. 
And when I saw military academy in high school to learn discipline, we finished out the captain of the baseball team. But uh, he learned over the course of his life, watching his father, he said, I responded to the business environment and I wasn't intimidated by my father. And I found that as I pushed back, if I disagreed with my father, that he actually respected it. And uh, Trump can point me out of the deal. If you want to understand any foreign policy, you need to read the can point me out of the deal. One of the points is, if he says, if people treat me fairly, I'm the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And he says, people are unfair or disrespectful towards me on a matter of principle, I fight back. That's the kind of right? We like it, don't like it. He says in the book, as I was growing up, I, I polarized people. He said, I found there was a group of people who absolutely loved me and would follow me over a cliff, and there were lots of other people who found me a kind of intimidating, disquieting, uncomfortable person. Okay? And Trump is saying, I'm used to that. That's my life story. I'm not intimidated by a million protesters. I'm just going to give you, I know I'm already out of time, you're indulging me, but I'm just going to say, I'm not of something. Okay. Stephen F. Cohen is a professor of Russian studies at Princeton University. Talking about the way Trump communicates, he said you have to understand Trump communicates in an elliptical way. Okay, but you have to look through that to what in what's in the man's heart. What is he trying to achieve? And one of the things brought me to Trump is I've been looking at Syria, as we all have, looking at U.S. foreign policy in Syria, looking at Australian foreign policy, and it just seems to me completely incoherent throughout the whole Obama administration. If you look at who our co-partners are in Syria. You know, they are the worst grab bag of global terrorists and Islamic extremists that you would ever want to be stuck in a list with. Uh, it is an embarrassment that we have. And then you've got Russia on the other side, okay, fighting Islamic State. Russian Green Berets going deep into Syria, getting killed. So at the time, we're making David Morrison Australian of the Year. He's our military hero. You've got Russian Green Berets deep inside Syria directing the bombing raids on Islamic State, and one of the guys realised he had been compromised by the Islamic State fighters who realised where he was and what he was doing, and they moved in for the kill from all sides, and his last order was to call in the bomb on his own position. Now, that's the Russian idea of valor, and our idea is David Morrison. And we had it wrong, and the whole establishment, the whole foreign policy establishment was just grinding on with this stupid war. If you could distinguish morally between those on the side of Assad and those on the side of the opposition, after Al-Qaeda and the lads had moved in, I thought, you've got, you know, you're kidding yourself. And Donald Trump looks at this and he says, okay, here we go. We've got inside NATO created at a time when the Berlin Wall was up and the Soviet Union was in place. Okay, so inside NATO we've got Turkey who's buying oil from Islamic State, right? Well, we're fighting Russia whose special forces are getting killed calling bombs in on their own position. Donald Trump, the only guy in the neighbourhood with the humility 
to ask the simple question, have we got this right? Why don't we make friends with Russia? Maybe they want to be friends with us. And that was the first, at that point, I said, okay, I'm taking Donald Trump seriously because he is saying the king's got no prize. And he did it again and again and again. He did it on the wall. He did it on the UN. He did it on education policy. He said, we've got to scrap Common Core. He turned around to, you know, you were talking about an outsider. Now, the first question of the first debate, who will take the place? Is everyone taking the place they won't run against the, 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 the winner if they don't win? Everybody's one hand goes up. One guy. All the establishment said he's finished. You then had the, 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 the news corps hosting the debate. First time in history a presidential candidate looked at the most powerful news network in the world and said, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to come. I think you need me more than I need you. That's Donald Trump. The last thing I'm going to tell you is that, you know, I spoke to Janet Albertson yesterday. She just returned from New York. She's been a close friend of hers. She's quite a senior journalist at the New York Times. And uh, she said, well, how do you, so I had a discussion, you know, how do you think it's going? And Mary Kessler, she said, you need to understand something. The American economy is on the balls of its feet, ready to go bang. And it just punched through after, if you read, you know, what was written about the flight of capital that was going to take place. When the United States drops corporate tax from 30% to 15%, I just tell you, capital is going to move. It's already moving. And uh, we are going to look like, you know, the, the, the old uh, pub that never got done. And there's a few Darrow's out in the front. Uh, and you walk in the front and it's a mix of beer and urine smell. Uh, that is what Australia is going to become. So I say, God bless Donald Trump. Wonderful exposition. There was some difference, so that will make an interesting debate. I might start with you and ask you, you talked about the elite that took Trump literally, but not seriously, and ordinary Americans who took him seriously, but not literally. Now that we've seen President Trump in office, mm. Do you think perhaps we should take him both literally and seriously? Um, look, I am. <coughs> I watched the inauguration uh, up live late, and everybody was kind of thinking, "Well, is he now just going to tone it down uh, and turn back the American towards the establishment?" Say, "Okay, well, that's what we had to do to close the deal. Uh, now we can behave like an old politician." And yet what we found uh, was that he basically ramped it up a lot. <laughs> he basically said, okay, now you're used to it. Now we're going to really start playing this game. Um, I am loving it. <laughs> I think it's just getting better and better. You know, I was on Sky last night and some bloke said, oh, we're watching something. This is just now we see it's probably going to be a train wreck. Okay. Donald Trump has easily carried the argument with the American people, both in relation to the refugee ban and the halt on the seven countries. The American people are overwhelmingly with him. Uh, according to Andrew Bolt, the numbers are two to one. 
Uh, I think if you could get an accurate reading from people talking to pollsters, uh, it would be probably two to one. And so, so long as he's operating from within the uh, consent of the American people, I think he's safe as houses. And I think the more the establishment uh, crawls into the fetal position and groans and cries and screams out, uh, the stronger his position becomes. Tom, could I ask you then, if we are to take him seriously and literally, is Trump a protectionist? And will, if he is, will that be bad for Australia? Well, I think uh, Daniel Bork from the Washington Post put it best when he said that the last two weeks show that uh, Trump and his record so far means that He's satisfied all his Trump supporters, but he's struck fear into the hearts of all his critics. And he's a very polarizing character. Uh, but one thing that's clear in the course of the last two weeks is that he has put into practice a lot of what he said he'd do, including the executive order on immigration, including uh, winding back or setting the scene for winding back uh, the Obama health care provisions, known as Obamacare, uh, the climate regulations. Uh, among other things. And the first, one of the first things he did, of course, was withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the 12 nations free trade agreement uh, that it covers 12 nations, including Australia. Um, I don't think that's in Australia's interest. And I think that if indeed Donald Trump imposes a 45% tariff on Chinese goods and services, as he said he would do during the course of the campaign, uh, if he imposes a 35% tariff on Mexican goods, I think that will, among other things, increase the prices of goods and services for the very battles he's ostensibly trying to help. I mean, obviously, textiles, clothing, footwear, for example, at Walmart, uh, the prices will go up because of the tariff increase. Um, so I don't think that's good for his own constituency, but I don't think it's good uh, for economic prosperity for the region and the globe generally. We went down this track in the late 1920s and throughout the 1930s when another Republican pre protectionist president, Herbert Hoover, in the aftermath of the uh, Wall Street plaque, uh, imposed tariffs on foreign imports. And many economists to this day believe that th that deepened the Great Recession. So, again, another problem is that if you indulge in tariffs and, and protectionist policies, you're more than likely going to get a response from trade competitors. Uh, economic history shows that uh, trade wars don't lead to prosperity. Uh, I'd ask you then, uh, you talked about the party of Reagan. Mm. Reagan, uh, I think, uh, Trump's advisor, or Trump, Trump's appointment, rather, as um, trade representative, was in acting in that office in the Reagan era, Lifehizer, Robert yeah. Lifehizer. And uh, he, of course, was instrumental, and they were instrumental in pushing forward voluntary restraint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Reagan also used tariffs uh, on, uh, on electronic goods coming from Japan. Yes. Do you think we're seeing uh, there, there are more similarities there than, than yes. perhaps those who wrap themselves and say we're the party of Reagan might care to remember? Well, that's a very good point. I think there is a degree of inconsistency here among conservatives. Reagan on semiconductors with Japan, on certain other industries, wasn't a classic free trader. 
Uh, but nevertheless, I think the broad cross-section of conservatives, and especially Reaganites, do believe in the principles of free trade. But look, one of the lessons we have learned from this election campaign, and this is a point that Francis Fukuyama, who's been a guest here at the Centre for Independent Studies on several occasions, who wrote this in Foreign Affairs magazine about a year ago, he said that what the rise of Trump and Bernie Sanders, the old 75-year-old socialist, who, who among other things, uh, honeymoon to the Soviet Union, but uh, Trump, and, <laughs> Trump and Sanders, their, their rise shows that uh, this is American democracy catching up uh, with uh, two generations of wage stagnation and rising income inequality for the losers of globalization. And they're precisely the folks that Donald Trump has won over. Uh, Louise, if I could turn to you then and ask you in Australia, and that's what's been happening, is that Tom mentioned Bernie Sanders. Do you think uh, if there's going to be a populist wave in Australia that it might actually be on the Labor side? Are we already seeing Labor adopting more populist positions, and how might that play out? Um, <coughs> I think the problem with Labor's populist positions is that they're totally incoherent with their other positions. So they can take some of the Donald's bits on jobs and pretend they're into protectionism, um, but when they're ignoring the other cultural things, such as free speech, and when they're going for the victim and the outrage, I mean, it's utterly incoherent. Um, which is why I think there are a lot of people um, who are saying there's only one seat difference between the parties, so Labor are going to win the next election. I don't, I don't think that's obvious at all, actually, because Labor's position is so incoherent. Um, so, look, I, the only way I see Labor running a populist position is if they reinstalled someone like Mark Latham. Truly, <laughs> I mean, I, I think Mark Latham, um, reinstalled in the Labor Party, could revolutionise it overnight. But I can't see Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek and um, Chris Bowen parting the waters for Mark to come and save them. That's not going to happen. So that's why I just don't think it's going to happen in a mainstream party. The, the, the vested interest, the, the, the way they are just factionalised, plugged in with people lined up and, and, and waiting, there is just, I mean, the career, I think one of the big problems we have, and I didn't go into this in speak, is, is the professionalisation of politics. Uh, the careerists, uh, none of them, or not many, not many at all, but most of them cannot afford to lose their jobs or lose their seats. So you will find that in all the state seats across all the, all the major parties, in nearly all cases, cases my, my husband's an exception, but in nearly all cases, they will have been pretty plugged into the political process prior to getting pre-selection. Usually they will have been a staffer, on the Labor side, a, a union member, uh, but on both sides, people like to think that they're not like this. But in fact, in the state seats, certainly across New South Wales, um, in, in the state seats, they are all career politicians. Now, there's nothing wrong with career politicians, but um, there are some wonderful people who are career politicians with great values and who do the right thing and behave properly, of course. But the overall system um, works to uh, eject non-career politicians. They don't like newbies. 
I can tell you. Um, and that is the problem. So I, I don't think it, I don't think a mainstream party um, is looking for Donald Trump. Rob, can I ask you? You're such a fan uh, um, of Donald Trump. Yeah. What's the one <coughs> bad thing that that you could see that could happen? You've paid a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. What what would be either his Achilles heel, or what's the one thing you fear that he might do? Well, look, I agree with Tom in relation to trade policy. Okay, I'm a Trump critic. All right. Um, in that I am uh, an Adam Schiffer. I am a Margaret Thatcher uh, person. I am a believer, like Paul Johnson, who said, if you look back to the sweep of human history, that have been the most positive influences for good on the whole of the human race. Um, he would say that trade is the number one, bringing voluntarily, bringing strangers together in trust-based relationships that create value for both sides, maximizing the natural strength of different communities, allowing people to Shine. Uh, I love it. Um, I would say that one of the reasons why Trump has failed when Jeremy talked about uh, the Aristotle thought that you know nature abhors a vacuum, so does politics. One of the reasons why Trump has adopted this protectionism is because there's hardly a leader in the free world who's actually an articulate advocate for free trade, including Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, including, uh, you know, so now Angela Merkel, you know, the greatest disaster in Europe since the Second World War, um, has finally decided, oh, she's finally got a cause to argue for uh, free trade. Okay, well, I will say Angela Merkel is the dumbest leader in Europe. Okay? And she uh, is responsible for permanently weakening because she's a part of this intelligentsia, this sort of class of elite who knows better than everybody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was your question? <laughs> 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 what do I worry about, Donald? Okay. Um, can I tell you, one of my original concerns, one of my secret original concerns, was that he had decided that uh, it, might, it was good for Trump, Inc., whether he won or lost running for the presidency. That was one of my original concerns. Uh, and one of the one of the you know eleven points in the art of the deal is manage the downside and the upside will take care of itself. Um, Trump ran the lowest cost campaign uh, but had the highest impact, you know, which again was another distinctive of one weekend I was in the United States, Donald Trump was on the front cover of twenty two national magazines in the United States, and he did not pay one cent for the advertising. But right now, Donald Trump, okay, has just sat down with his generals, and he said, okay, lads, you've got 30 days to come up with a plan to wipe Islamic State from the face of the earth. <laughs> okay, now, do I feel nervous about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, Donald Flynn, you know, Killer Flynn, we're going to have Killer, we're going to have these U.S. generals who have been commanding men, tanks, battalions, weapons all over the world, sitting down with Maurice Pine, okay. uh, negotiating uh, Australia's participation, they've just put Iran formally on notice. Okay. Iran went ahead. The first test launched the on an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
Okay, after the Obama Iran coup. Okay, Iran is officially gone. Okay, so Donald has walked back into the room. He's got his, he's got his Minister for Defence back in the room. Says, Iran, you're on notice formally. I'm telling you right now. After he's just sacked his stupid uh, acting Attorney General, you know, who gormlessly walks into the room. I'm not going to do what you say, Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull has not fired anyone since he got him the job. Donald Trump has done it the first sort of six days. Bang, you're gone, sister. See you later. Pack out. <laughs> well, since we're all critically edgy, I'm going to throw it over to you, our wonderful audience. Um, so if you have any questions, uh, and I think we have people who will race over. Uh, the gentleman there with the blue tie, yes, so that's you. Thank you very much, uh, all three of you. Paul Nettlebeck is my name. Many of you here would have heard John Howard just before Christmas, and one of his uh, observations was that he hoped that Trump can deliver to the voters who voted for him. But I think the consensus is that, particularly on the trade issue, he's not going to be able to deliver that. Um, could I have your uh, opinions whether he's going to be able to deliver or not? Well, bear in mind, cutting the company tax rate from 35 to 15 percent. <coughs> The first claims company can seem like it's going to help a lot of those battlers in those rust belt states, but it will stimulate the economy. And taken together with his plans to uh, in increase infrastructure spending, which will presumably get democratic support on Capitol Hill, uh, and if he targets that infrastructure spending in a lot of those rust belt areas that are deindustrialized, that may well create enough stimulus to bring back a lot of jobs to that area. But I don't think trade in itself will do that, I think. The reality is a lot of those low-wage jobs in China that, that, that have been that have left America over the last 15 to 20 years since China's inclusion in the WTO, they're now leaving China and they're going to countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and Myanmar. So they're not going to come back to the United States. That's just the reality. Uh, but nevertheless, you can stimulate the economy and, and target infrastructure spending in a way that does boost jobs and employment and the growth in those electorates. <coughs> Look, I'm going to tell you, um, you know, you, some will say, uh, Ross Cameron was always mad. Um, but I'm going to tell you, uh, again, go back to the art of the deal. It's the Bible. You know, uh, he says, uh, first of all, he says, if I have to think, I might as well think big. Number two, he says, uh, manage the downside, the upside will look after itself. Number three, he says, once you've decided your plan, get the word out. Then number four, he says, deliver on the promise. Deliver. He says, you can't keep... He says, the reason his father made a fortune, or made the small fortune, which Donald turned into a big fortune, was because he figured out at the time <coughs> the middle class was growing. The first thing, Donald Trump's father built his first commercial structure at the age of 16, which was a carport at the time cars were just becoming a feature of middle-class America in Queens and the Bronx and outside. And, but then he learned how to deliver high-quality housing cheaply. And he, he could sell it as fast as he could make it because it was a good product. And according to Trump, it's still a good product today. Trump is focused on delivering the result. Trump, I believe is going, when Trump starts rebuilding these dilapidated uh, inner urban cities that have fallen into uh, graffiti and, uh, you know, uh, all over the United States, 
Trump is a builder. Trump is going to clip together a wall across the southern border of the United States like an IKEA bookcase. <laughs> it's going to make people's heads spin. They're going to go, how the hell did that happen? And, uh, you know, I believe the thing that is going to make the difference, while I'm not with him on trade, the next point in the eye of the deal, which you have to understand, is use your leverage. And this was, I believe, uh, part of the, this is part of the Trump mindset that must be understood. Use your leverage. And I believe he's looked at the Trans-Pacific Partnership and he said, well, this has been uh, negotiated by Bonehead Obama's cronies who did the same deal uh, to take uh, a couple of thousand Australian refugees for no reason. Uh, and Trump is saying, no, 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 no. Use your leverage. So he's saying, let's tear up the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I believe that Donald Trump believes in free trade probably more than I do. He certainly does more of it than I have done. And I think you're going to see him and come back to the negotiating table and he's going to do better deals. And this is the stupidity of the Turnbull Coalition government, uh, which was when we learned Trump was going to walk away from the TPP, instead of saying, okay, uh, what is the deal we can do with this guy? What are the, what are the opportunities this opens up? And, and Trump's senior guys were saying, his transition team were saying, look, we expect to enhance deals we've already done on a bilateral basis. And the truth is bilateralism has always been more productive than multilateralism. Multilateralism is part of the elite insider consensus, what I call the lanyard-wearing, you know, business class brigade who cannot resist a conference in Rio, no matter what the subject, you know. Uh, the, the ones who were sort of trampling over the bodies in Buckland in Paris before where they'd just been interred from one of the worst acts of Islamic terrorism, trampling over the bodies to get to a conference to try and lower the temperature of the earth. Uh, these cowards, um, Donald Trump is saying, no, 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 let's do a deal. Donald Trump's brain is evolved, he's like the most highly evolved organism in doing a deal. That's basically all he knows how to do, is a deal. And so if Australia is smart, the first question, you know, Malcolm Turnbull should have said to Donald Trump is, what deal can we do? Donald would be saying, you're talking my language. You know, if he should have said, what can we do? Look, we want to do something for Australian beef producers. If we're going to say, oh, look, I was really disappointed that Australian sugar farmers got left out of the TPP, I'm trying to figure out if there's something we can do for you that will allow our sugar farmers into your market, that would have been an intelligent conversation. The fact that the first conversation we have to have is over 1,200 refugees, you know, which, which you know, Rudd, Gillard, uh, Abbott, Turnbull, now presumably, who knows next, have been unable to solve, which has absolutely no logic to it whatsoever. When Donald Trump turns to Malcolm and says, well, I look at the cell, I don't see how it's in the interest of the American people. You know, what's the answer to that, Malcolm? Well, obviously it's not. <laughs> I, I don't know what he's going to deliver, so I won't speculate. But what I am worried about is our ability to respond to it. 
because of the structural impediments we have. So where we need legislation to pass to respond, such as the reduction in company tax, we are we are heading we are going to be here stagnant, as Ross said, and that's what I'm worried about is our ability to to deal with it. Can I just make a point too? But bear in mind, Trump has very deep disagreements, not just with uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats, but with many members of his own party. And nothing better demonstrates that than the cause of free markets. I mean, on the TPP, the reality is the broad cross-section of the Republican Party in both the House and the Senate supported the TPP, uh, not just because it meant lower tariffs, but because it meant that the United States would be the principal rule setter in the Asia-Pacific in the 21st century and not China fill the void. And that is, frankly, in our national interest, I think. The other point I'd say is that when you go back to those presidential primaries last year, Donald Trump was the least conservative candidate or the least free market oriented candidate out of the 17 presidential candidates. And again, nothing demonstrates that more than not just trade, but his position towards welfare and entitlement reform. I mean, one of the big pressing issues on Capitol Hill over the last five years has been the Tea Party free market wing of the Republican Party wanting to reduce the size and the scope of the federal government, which means reforming entitlements to rein in debt. Trump opposes all those welfare entitlement reforms. So bear that in mind, Ross, before you put him on a pedestal, because he is not a free marketeer and he's not a supporter of small government. Uh, almost running out of time, I want uh, right there at the back, gentlemen. Thank you, James Phillips. I'm, I'm very interested in the reaction of the cultural elite to, um, to Brexit and to the election of Trump. And from what I've read so far, the two predominant um, reactions are to demonize specific people who would vote for such things um, and to treat it purely as an economic in, uh, issue rather than um, uh, uh, an issue which has substa substantial cultural components uh, to it. Are there any um, views of the panel as to the ability of um, uh, our academies and state owned media and other parts of the cultural elite? To engage in some self-criticism around these issues. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, look, I, I truly have spent all of my life traipsing between these two worlds. I grew up in far western New South Wales, where everyone's a National Party voter. It's really, it's really quite working class, but everyone is conservative socially. Um, my parents are absolutely that. My extended family are there. Um, I went to high school in southwestern Sydney, and then I went to Sydney University, did law, and ended up here. Now I live back in Goulburn. So I have spent my whole life going between those two worlds, um, and I've always been conscious of the difference. But I've been conscious much more in the last 10 years, pre-Brexit and pre-Trump, I have to say. And the reaction of my friends, my good friends um, and colleagues here in Sydney who work in the CBD, um, to, even, to people living in Goulburn, they, 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 they laugh, they say, how could you go there? I mean, it is, it, they are genuinely snobby about it. Uh, I have wonderful colleagues in the universities where I've taught here in Sydney and um, um, in Canberra. No, they don't get it. And I don't see any evidence of them trying. Mm. So, 
I don't want to take up much more time, but a classic example. Um, yesterday on Facebook, one of my very dear friends who lives in Sydney, who's a left-wing barrister, shared one of Christina Keneally's articles, um, which was Malcolm, you know, support our values, which of course was her values. Um, and I love Christina. I think she's wonderful. I think she's a gem, and I think she's clever and smart and articulate. But her piece in the Guardian was saying, "You've got to stand up for our values." And then she said, "I." When I go to the supermarket and the gym and the school, people are coming up to me and they're sick. And I go, I laugh at that. When I go to Pilates, yes, we have Pilates in Golden. And when I go to the supermarket and to Pop Shop or wherever I go, um, no one's scared. And my, our, our fellow who helps us on the farm um, said to me a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen him for a while. So what do you think? And he's the guy who sits on the, the, the sort of top rail of the stockyards, and he's trying, he talks to everyone in Goulburn. So I say, what's happening on the of the stockyard? And he said, geez, that Trump, he's a scary dude, but geez, I love the way he's giving it to them. Louise, <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, one final question. <laughs> uh, you, your husband, Angus Taylor, he's a brilliant man. Why isn't he the night in Charlotte? Come on, David. Oh, like. <laughs> uh, look, why don't you let me answer that question? <laughs> could I? Can I, I wind it up? Let, let me on. say one thing. I will say one thing. I reflected. I thought that some cheeky person like you might ask something about that. But um, the one thing that Angus. And he doesn't have much in common with Donald Trump, I don't think, but he does have something in common, and that is that he is a transplant. Um, he is a foreign body in the Liberal Party, and they have tried to eject him once, and, uh, uh, you know, they might try again. So that is the truth of it. Uh, but we're in Westminster, as I said. It's very tricky, you know. Everyone, that, that's the strength of the system, but it's its weakness. Can I just quickly make a point, though, following on from the first question, I'll be quick, Rebecca. I think in many respects Australia had a Trump moment in 99 over the Republican referendum. Mm. And I make this point because there was a huge uh, divergence of, um, uh, big divergence between the elite opinion and ordinary people on the question of whether we should become a republic or whether we should embrace the politicians' republic. Mm. And I was struck having worked at Fairfax at the time, the overwhelming consensus among all the newspapers and the television stations and all the journalists and intellectuals was that a republic was not only a good thing, but an, an inevitable thing. And the people disagreed. And that was a Trump moment. The, the culture things have, have got worse, though, since then. In yeah. 1999, I mean, I was a lawyer in Sydney and going out west to parents. I, I, the cultural superiority, the, the sense of superiority amongst the, you know, the cultural elite is... is I mean, the, the yeah. total intolerance yeah. for views of ordinary people. Yeah. Um, it just strikes me again and again. I see it every day with my interactions in the both worlds. But the Liberal Party has been absolutely useless uh, at addressing any of this. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you vote Liberal, Labor or Green, mm -hmm. you are still going to have a Sydney University Faculty of Arts. I mean, Sydney University Faculty of Arts went out and recruited the world's leading feminist authority on the orgasm, okay? She was, she's the leader of the operation, right? She's widely published on, on, on masturbation, okay? And I thought, very, very appropriate for Sydney University Faculty of Arts. 
you know, that's basically what they're all good at. Uh, you know, uh, meanwhile, the Chinese are building 20,000 kilometres of high-speed rail, you know, because their people actually <laughs> learn some skills, they learn how to sing. Well, I think there's a one. <laughs> 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 